Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Uh, hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. <laughs> Hi, guys. I'm certain about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we start, I would like to commend Alex on his, uh, his new role as a pot dealer. Oh wow! Oh boy! I didn't know if you would go into this on the show. That's this is this is, uh, this is airing some 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 considerable laundry. Yeah, I, uh, I also saw this on Instagram, so I <laughs> love that we're talking about it. Can I, we yeah. please explain before people get the wrong idea? I will. Uh, I purchased a uh, an unconscionably large pork shoulder almost accidentally at a store, and I didn't have a, a pot to cook it in, and. Uh, Alex or is my neighbor, in, as it turns out. No, and uh, he lent me a a very very large Dutch oven. In fact, he drove it to my apartment. Uh, he lives I about did. three blocks away. Yeah, well, I I drove it to Bill's apartment because when he was concocting this plan to borrow this pot from me, we initially he was initially going to walk down and get it to save me some effort. And as I was going to retrieve it, this is like a I think this is like a thirteen quart pot. This is like the biggest one Enormous. they make, and I'm like. You really can't. I mean, you live close by, but in the heat, that would have been like a hell of a walk for you. Um, I really like that this is just um, if the listeners ever wondered if the rapport with you guys was just uh, a fake thing for the show. No, no. You are truly oh. friends in each other's lives. <laughs> help and cook dinner. Mm-hmm. Not only that, I've been on like a pro se crew like errand circuit for a couple of days now because on the way to drop off the pot at bill's house i then drove up to producer steve's house who lives a couple blocks north of him because i had lent him my uh my my microphone and mic stand for something you guys were doing for the term so i went to pick that up and actually i had dropped that off the previous week after borrowing a set of bocce balls from bill in the same run. Wow. So this is all very Brooklyn inclusive. Is We're very so fun. And yeah. I'm over here in Jersey City by myself. Yeah, we can't Ugh. really drop stuff off to you. No, easily. no, not at all. This is yeah. totally left out, everybody. Just like uh, Yeah, I mean we could talk about the cookware exchange in Brooklyn all day, but uh, <laughs> we I certainly uh, could. we have a very good show. Uh the, I, w- I want to note that someone put in the notes for the show a big SCOTUS energy, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> someone um, did. <laughs> we're going to be wrapping up the SCOTUS term. We've got uh, Jimmy Hoover, our, uh, our the host of our sister show, The Term. Jimmy is excellent at breaking down our, the, the whole term, all the big themes, all the big events, the big flush, all that stuff. So uh, <laughs> it's a great talk. Stick around for that. But before then... Um, I think Alex is going to kick us off with some big news on the immigration front. Yes. Um, looking forward to that, uh, hearing that talk uh, that you guys had with Jimmy. Um, there was some interesting news this week. Um, and like you say, a, a while back, last year, I think, we did a whole segment on the stresses that practicing immigration law in the Trump era can bring. And I really think we saw that dynamic on full display this week as the administration rolled out this a uh, new policy that effectively barred foreign students from the United States if their U.S. universities opted to move their classes online in response to the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Um, the administration introduced this policy, got sued, sort of made a vigorous defense of it in court, and then finally backed down all within the span of about nine days. So it was it was quite a ride on the immigration. A whirlwind. Front. Yeah. Um, well, so I mean, yeah, this is all in the backdrop of a pandemic, so that's yeah. how this starts. Um, 
not that we need to make anything more complicated during this time, but the administration sure tried. Can you kind of just lay the the basis of what was in dispute here? What what did the Trump administration propose? Yeah, and the and the timeline is important, so I, I hope you'll stick with me on that. So I mean, technically, like all coronavirus adjacent stories, it starts back in about mid March. When the when it when the U.S. Um, sort of began its forceful policy response to the outbreak, um, so what you need to know basically is that U.S. immigration law generally bars foreign students on F one or M one visas from taking more than one online class to maintain residency on that visa. You need to have the bulk of your classes be in person in order for you to be to be an occupant of this country on those visas. So that's like the baseline rule. But as the pandemic took hold in mid-March, the administration basically relaxed that policy and says that though and, and said that those visas would apply even for an entirely online curriculum. They, they, and, and again, they did that back in mid-March. So like a relaxation of the enforcement of the current law. Fast forward to Monday, July 6th, l- l- the Monday before last. Um, Immigration and, Custom and, and Customs Enforcement completely reverses course. And it says it will not grant or renew visas for students whose schools have moved completely online for the for the coming fall semester. This essentially forces the students to either leave the U.S. to to do their online learning uh, in their home countries or face deportation if they don't want to do that. So this obviously causes a huge upheaval. Colleges are in the middle of mapping out their fall semester plans to deal with, uh, you know, remote learning, and some people are going to do a sort of hybrid model, things like that. Um, ICE is then sued by Harvard and MIT. A couple other universities sue later. Uh, Also, like, 17 states eventually sue over this, but we're just going to talk about the Harvard and MIT suits for the purposes of that. They sue just two days after this policy is laid out. Pretty garden-variety administrative law claim. They basically say that the change, this sort of abrupt change in the policy is arbitrary. It's burdensome. It's not really clearly explained. Uh, a couple quotes just from the suit. Um, it said that the, that the policy change created, quote, an untenable situation of either moving forward with their carefully calibrated, thoughtful, and difficult decisions to proceed with their curricula fully or largely online in the fall of 2020, Or, quote, attempt with just weeks before classes resume to provide in-person education despite the grave risk to public health and safety that such a change would entail. So you see it there where, like, obviously the change affects students first and foremost. They are the ones who have to abide by the visa rules. But when the universities sued, they're saying, like, if we, the universities, don't want to don't want that to happen, you are basically twisting our arms to hold in-person classes when it's probably not safe for us to do so. I imagine that they were seeking some sort of quick order here, right? Because the 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 idea is we need this changed and we need it changed fast. Yeah, I mean they Harvard and MIT very much stress the urgency of the situation, right? Like we are we are you know, a handful of weeks out from the fall semester starting at colleges. And the judge hearing the case in Massachusetts, it was in Massachusetts federal court obviously. Uh, her name was Allison Burroughs, and she really took that sort of urgency to heart. So the day after the suit is filed, like the government hasn't even filed a response yet, but the day after she calls, she calls a status conference or she calls a conference and she basically tells the government, you either put a stay on this policy right now or we're going right to an injunction hearing in six days. Uh, and, and basically like you're, you're lucky to get that much time because time is of the essence. There's a million moving parts that go into this. 
Um, the government does not put on a stay, um, basically says, OK, fine, we'll 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 proceed towards an injunction hearing. Uh, the deadline that she sets for that is July 15th, which is the Wednesday, the day before we're recording this. Um, just before that happens, the government files a brief just kind of fully sticking to its guns. It basically says that this is not this is not a policy change so much as a a return to the normal policy, a removal of this leniency that they were doing, um, this leniency that they granted in March. Uh, they wrote that the student visa rules, quote, are settled and longstanding and have required that students complete their program of study in person rather than fully online or through distance education for close to 20 years. And they said that the suit is basically trying to, uh, quote, rewrite the black letter requirements of the law and bind the enforcement authority of the federal government. So they're saying, like, all we're doing is going back to what we were doing before. Um, and, and, and like I say, as recently as two days before this injunction hearing, they are fully defending it. Okay, so that's sort of a posture we've seen from the Trump administration on immigration things before. They'll get challenged. There's been urgency about other things like the travel ban we saw a few years ago. Um, they've often doubled down and stuck to their guns on what they want to do. Uh, but that's not where this story ultimately lands. What yeah. changed? What happened? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty unusual. Um, and I just want to sort of give a shout out. We'll credit them at the end of the show like we always do. But our Boston reporter, Chris Villani, and our immigration reporter, Suzanne Muniak, were both all over this. Great coverage, wall to wall. Villani was all over this because he was obviously covering the actual hearing. And he was talking about how everybody that he was talking to was like preparing for this absolute just like free for all of an injunction hearing six days after this policy um, uh, or rather six days after the suit was filed. Um, but as it turns out, like you say, Amber, the whole thing lasts about two minutes. Um, the judge uh, hops onto the call and says that the government has agreed to rescind this directive, move back to the status quo, um, allowing these, uh, the, these visas to be compliant, even uh, if, a, if a curriculum goes fully online, going back to the March status quo, basically moots the suit and all the others um, that came after it. Um, I was, I'm not an immigration expert, Amber, maybe you can speak to this a little bit more since you used to track this quite closely. I, I saw it as like kind of like a condensed version of the DACA saga. We had a policy implemented, then reversed a lot of chaos from that reversal, a lawsuit, and then a resolution, except here it took nine days instead of like (laughs) however many years DACA took. And it didn't take a trip to the Supreme Court. And it didn't so, take that either. Difference. It was all yeah. in, the, in the Massachusetts just, federal court. To me, very this felt really a piece with just 2020 where things seem to be moving real fast this year in all facets yeah. of life and all news. And yeah. this also felt to me like if you took a legal story and paced it at the speed Twitter would like everything to happen, this <laughs> oh, is what I you get. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's probably true. Yeah. Well... So it's funny that you mentioned DACA because DACA, we got a big Supreme Court ruling, but obviously there is still some lingering, you know, there's stuff that's going to happen going forward from it. What happens here? I mean, is this done now? I mean, or are they going to try to do this again in a different way? What comes next? Yeah, well, I mean, immigration lawyers who listen, and I don't want to like sort of dismiss the concerns about people who are actually impacted by the orders, but we're talking about the, uh, you know, speaking to the lawyers here. You know, they know better than to let their guard down when the administration makes an immigration policy change. Anything could change. Um, For now, the suit is basically settled in a certain respect. Suzanne, as I said, did great work on this. She wrote a really good feature that recapped a lot of the 
whipsawing back and forth nature of this thing. And that while the while the policy has been walked back and there's basically no basically no lingering threat for the students who are already in the U.S. on these visas, there's still a ton of uncertainty pertaining to students that are still abroad and are looking to travel for to the U.S. for the fall semester. There's a uh, this is like a sort of whole other story, but there's a there's a patchwork of virus related travel bans and the shutdown of um, overseas visa services that will give those people a lot of trouble. And actually, even after ICE updated its policy, its policy FAQs online after this ruling, the the guidance that it has put out explicitly says uh, students that have not arrived in the United States should remain in their home countries. So there's very little resolution for if, if you hadn't happened to travel to the United States for the fall semester yet. So, you know, some of that will be alleviated uh, if and big if the virus, uh, you know, abates and phased reopenings begin. Um, But there's plenty of work here, and I suspect uh, the immigration bar uh, will remain on high alert. Well, for our second story, we're going to be talking about another group of attorneys that are on high alert uh, as we enter the late summer and and the fall, and that's uh, attorneys who represent tenants, because as COVID cases uh, continue to spike, continue to surge across the U.S., a raft of different protections for renters are about to expire. And there's growing concern about a potential huge wave of evictions and resulting homelessness that's going to come from this. Law 360's RJ Vote and Annie Panzak put together a really powerful story and video package that everyone should go check out at law360.com on the impending crisis and, uh, you know, what we might see in the months and weeks ahead if if lawmakers don't take additional action. Yeah, this video uh, in particular that Annie and RJ put together, I really encourage people to watch it. They specifically tracked um, three uh, African-American renters that were facing issues because the issue so often disproportionately impacts uh, people of color. So it's really, it's a story that people should be paying more attention to. But let's start with, I thought there were a lot of protections right now during the pandemic. What's up with that? There, there are. Uh, and before we start, we should say um, uh, Annie and RJ's work is in front of the paywall. So anyone who's listening yes. to it, it was an Allah 360 subscriber. You can go check it out because it's part of our COVID coverage. So, um, but yeah, Amber, to your question. Um, the, so the the big federal relief at the CARES Act um, included, among many other things, a moratorium on evicting renters who live in federally backed housing. Um, yeah. So that obviously didn't cover everyone, but um, many state and local governments issued their own uh, moratoria on evictions. We saw it. Uh, all of us are in the New York City area. We saw a lot in New York City, but um, uh, in cities and states around the country, we saw this kind of stuff and. The idea here, I, I don't even know if this needs to be said, but um, was that the, when the pandemic hit, tens of millions of people all of a sudden were not getting paid anymore through no fault of their own. And and the, the idea is that simply throwing all those people onto the street would not only be pretty inhumane, but also bad public health policy as we're yeah, dealing absolutely. with the pandemic that – it's this is a thing where we've been literally told to stay at home. So if you start <laughs> yeah. taking people away from their homes and taking their homes away, you're in a situation where the virus is just going to spread even more. So there are there are really sort of strong policy reasons for these kind of uh, protections. You know, if it, people I'm sure know if they've been reading the news, but we are in 
in the U.S., we are in this very odd phase where much of the economy is kind of like attempting to revive itself, even as the numbers don't quite bear out that that's maybe the most prudent policy choice. And a big part of that, it's not like people are always vindictive and mean-spirited and want to just get off their butt and start doing something. It's because it's precisely because federal and state-level protections that, that were meant to put guardrails on the economic prong of this crisis are, are, are expiring. And I know that that is the case um, with these eviction moratoriums too, right? It is. So by the end of this week, uh, courts in 39 states will be accepting new eviction cases, meaning the, the moratoriums have, have uh, yeah. expired. Um, and, and later this month, right at the end of July, the federal protections that I mentioned earlier will also lapse. Um, and, and as you alluded to in asking the question, uh, this is coming as new COVID cases are surging in places yeah. around the country. And as much as we want to reopen the, these economies, you know, places like Texas and Florida are really having to look and say, do we need to shut back down? We saw California shut back down. Um, so th- you're going to have a situation where, once again, even if we want to open the economy, people are not going to have the money to pay pay for rent. Mm-hmm. So the combo of all these things sort of nets out at next month, millions of new people are going to be vulnerable to eviction proceedings. And I think an important stat to keep in mind when we think about evictions is that on average, 90% of landlords have legal representation when we go into uh, a, a eviction hearing. Only 10% of tenants do when you go into those same hearings. So it's a it's a situation where there is a systemic imbalance in the way that people have access to the court system, and you're going to have tons of new people being thrown into that system. Okay, so it's pretty clear we see a storm brewing here for all the reasons you've outlined. Um, has it started, or do we just see the clouds in the distance? So uh, RJ and Annie did a really good job of highlighting big picture and also individual cases. In a big picture sense, Milwaukee is a good preview because um, uh, Wisconsin's state moratorium on evictions expired at the end of May. Yeah. So we got sort of June as this test lab, and June in uh, Milwaukee saw a huge spike in eviction cases. They were up... 17% from where they normally are in June, uh, not, you know, not, not from the moratorium to not moratorium. They're just against a normal June. They were up yeah. 17%. And that's even with the, the federal CARES Act protections still yeah, sure. yeah. in place. And as Amber alluded to at the very beginning, two thirds of, of Milwaukee's new eviction cases were filed in majority black neighborhoods. So, um, you know, th- that sort of data is echoing concerns that, that this will have a really, really disproportionate effect on on people of color. Um, their story in their video also did a great job of going and looking at individual cases of people who have been affected by this despite Definitely. existing protections. Um, yeah. And they sort of illustrate how how ugly the months ahead might be. Um, one of them was a, a Nashville woman named Alicia Moore. Um, when when COVID hit, she was a uh, she was working as a delivery person. Uh, she couldn't keep doing that because she cares for her seventy four year old mother with pre existing conditions. So eventually, she fell three months behind on rent and was hit with an eviction notice. Tennessee has no protections in place for uh, at the at, at when she got that eviction notice um, for pandemic related evictions. So she went to court. She didn't have an attorney. And she was there with hundreds of other people wearing masks, trying to be socially distant, but uh, many of whom did not have attorneys. 
At the July 2nd hearing, the judge ordered them evicted. They owed $2,200 in unpaid rent. I was on my own. All she wanted to hear was, is this his property? Yes, ma'am. She said, after 10 days, Chuck Prime will be there to bring your stuff out of the house. Do you understand, Ms. Moore? I said, yes, Your Honor, I understand. Yeah, this is some tough stuff to hear when you hear, you know, individual real people that are potentially going to be homeless. Um, What's being done here? Is there anything to help people who are really struggling right now? So I think a lot of people think that if you go to court and you are, uh, you know, you don't have the the means to afford an attorney that one is provided for you. But, you know, in civil cases, that is often not the case. Um, Legal aid uh, is there to provide attorneys in those situations, but um, they were already stretched dangerously thin before the pandemic. And now you suddenly are seeing are going to see there. Those those organizations are short staffed in the absolute best of times. So I can only imagine yeah. So a lot of people who are going to these, um, you know, these housing courts are not going to have any legal representation whatsoever. And we should say there are um, we've already noted that there are just going to be so many more people sucked into the system. Uh, one stat we, we saw was that one quarter of all Americans have already missed a rent payment or a mortgage payment in June Jeez. Um, before the latest spike in covid cases sure, yeah. really really started in in early july um one expert that rj spoke to in the story said that 20 to 28 million renters will face eviction without new moratoriums and and financial assistance so um in in places around the country there's uh there's something like 120 new rental assistance programs that have been launched to help people pay their rent to negotiate deals with their landlords but the demand for those programs almost immediately has outstripped its supply. In Houston, which was really hard hit by one of these later waves over the summer, um, uh, you know, 25% of renters spend more than half their income on rent. The city's relief program launched in June with $15 million. Less than 90 minutes after the program was opened, they had run through that that uh, source of money and and had to close down. So it really shows you how much need there is and how little the existing programs are covering it. We're at a fascinating point in the um, response to the, to the virus here, because it's like, there's a lot of, you know, on an interpersonal level, you can only do so much. You go outside, you wear the mask, you do the distancing and all of this. And then on a, but on a much broader level, federal state, local governments, like, the, the 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 clock is clearly running for like you know public assistance to be provided and you've like talked about how various municipalities and states are struggling to do that what is on the horizon here in this regard so some states uh, have left their 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 moratoria in place you know new york's is is up on august 5th but right across the hudson river new jersey's is staying in place sort of indefinitely until the governor decides to lift the emergency rules himself. So there is some flexibility. Not every state is going to immediately have this crisis. But even in places like New Jersey, where the the rule is still in effect, some landlords are simply flouting the rules. And yeah. th- that, that puts the onus on tenants who, who as I've mentioned earlier, often don't have the means. It puts the onus on them to go to court and fight back. Walked up, put my key in, and the key ain't going in. My neighbor, he opened the door for me when I go in. Now I found all my stuff stolen. And that blue bucket right there has all the pictures, the family, all that was ripped down. 
I get a frantic call telling me that they were locked out of their apartment and that their possessions had been stolen. I prepared their order to show cause application, their lawsuit against the landlord for illegally evicting them. Illegal evictions happen way more frequently than most of us realize. So the second person that we heard speaking on the video there was a woman named Kabira Myers, who is the uh, the coordinator of um, the Office of Tenant Legal Services in Newark, New Jersey. Um, and it's an organization that was set up by the, the city government to to fill the gaps that are not uh, covered by legal aid when it comes to helping folks who are are, are evicted or are facing uh, illegal evictions like the people we heard in that video um, go to court and and get their their day in court but but those groups are are obviously limited themselves and can only do so much so but even the places that have left their uh, eviction bans in place for now those will come down eventually so there are calls for uh additional aid from the federal government to you know more direct rental payments more uh, and and new moratoria there's a bill called the emergency housing protections and relief act which uh, the US house of representatives passed it in may um, the bill would it would extend another 100 billion in direct rental payments and uh, it would come with a 12 month national eviction moratorium but yeah. the senate has thus far um, signaled very little interest in considering it so we may see some back and forth negotiating over what that might look like, but that's one option that's out there. One element of this equation that I feel like we haven't talked much about is uh, the power of landlord groups, obviously the opposite side here. Um, mm-hmm. They have argued that that moratoria on like a blanket level are unfair, that these are a lot of times these are small businesses that are, you know, keep that, that they will become insolvent. They have mortgage payments. So their opposition to this stuff could be a key uh, force in what gets passed both at the federal level, but they've also sued over local stuff. So um, we will see what happens there, but it is a it is a very tricky issue, and um, the uh, whatever happens when it comes to the the landlords agreeing with tenant advocates and different different measures, it's going to have to come soon because as we've seen, uh, there is sort of a ticking time bomb when it comes to uh, the the eviction crisis ahead. was a year of big surprises at the high court. Chief Justice John Roberts sided with the progressive wing of the court on abortion and immigrant rights. Fiery dissents came from conservatives that often challenged other conservatives. And we also heard a mystery flush during oral arguments. We're joined today by Jimmy Hoover, Law 360 Supreme Court reporter and host of the Term Podcast to help us make sense of everything that happened this year. Welcome back to the show, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. You know, before we get started, I would say we I would say that we are responsible for for young James's podcasting success and I'm just happy to have him back, you know, happy to, to that we the prodigal son has returned. Yeah. I no. love that you're taking some credit for uh-huh, Jimmy's uh-huh. talent. That's that uh-huh. nothing good job, to do with Bill. Amber. This was has, all Bill's brainchild. <laughs> yeah, all me. Um nothing and frankly, nothing to do with Jimmy at all. Uh, right. no, it's just not all, at all. Us. how could it? Uh, yeah, thr- well, thrilled I mean, to have you back. 
we're kingmakers here at Pro Se. That's what we're doing. Um, but it is nice to have you back, especially since you've spent a whole Supreme Court term talking every week about a bunch of these big developments. And man, it was a wild year. I think probably we should start where every single story starts in the year 2020, which is, hey, there's this pandemic and it made things strange. Can you tell us how that impacted the court? Well, I'll tell you what, it didn't impact us over at Law 360's other podcast, The Term. We, you know, we plugged right through, on through and kept recording episodes through the pandemic because, uh, yeah, I'm obviously in D.C. and Natalie, our co-host, is in New York, so we're used to the whole remote thing. But, yeah, yeah, at the, at the, at the Supreme Court, it, it pretty much threw things totally out of whack. They had to cancel their March and April oral argument sessions, um, and then there was this whole big kind of speculation over what they were going to do with the remaining outstanding cases. And they ended up uh, rescheduling about 10 of them, about half of them for this unprecedented May teleconference oral argument session, which happened to be the first actual live broadcast, audio only, but, you know, live streamed oral arguments in the Supreme Court's 230 year history. So that was a big deal in and of itself. It was it was wild because it was something that people had been clamoring for for years. And then all of a sudden it was just like, okay, we'll do it. It was so strange to see this thing of people were, you know, we want cameras in the courthouse. We want more transparency. It's one of our key, you know, uh, one of the three branches of government. We need cameras in there. And then all of a sudden it's just like, okay, yes, we're doing cameras or we're doing we're doing live streaming recording, not cameras, obviously. But um but it was just a, a you know one of those things where the coronavirus immediately shifted uh, an existing thing, right? Yeah, I mean it, it it forced the court to kind of enter the the twentieth century, I guess you could say, yeah. um, with 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 live audio just to kind of kind of refresh people's memory if they don't remember. But the court would only ever release audio recordings on the Friday after oral argument, so not even same day audio, let alone live audio. So now finally we had. Kind of a modest improvement in transparency with the live audio. But yeah, there was a lot to talk about. There was a, a number of different things that we learned from the teleconference session. Obviously, yeah, Amber. Let's, get into, let's get into some of that, Jimmy, because there was the initial shock of like, oh, they're actually going to do it. But what what impact did it have? What sort of weird things happened? Who talked a bunch? I know we had Thomas speaking up for the first time in a long time. Well, Bill, I mean, you you were like the guy for that first case because that was like totally your bailiwick, right? The Booking.com case, which, you know, I attribute the high numbers of, of, you know, listeners to that case because of the very interesting subject matter. Nothing to do with the fact that it was the first (laughs) live-streamed oral argument, of course. A scintillating ride through the world of sort of arcane trademark law. Right. But the the first thing we learned is that Thomas, because there was some, we were kind of, you know, us in the Supreme Court press corps were wondering what. Justice Thomas, the perennially silent Justice Thomas was going to do um, when it came turn because uh, the court had announced ahead of time that they were going to kind of ask questions in order of seniority with Chief Justice kind of leading the charge during the oral arguments, you know, whereas normally during, you know, an open court sitting, they would just it would just kind of be a free for all. But Thomas, yeah, it turns out not only does he have, you know, functioning vocal cords, but he has kind of a nice deep baritone <laughs> and he and he took full advantage and asked questions, I think, during each of the attorney's arguments throughout the two week teleconference session. So that was the major surprise of the teleconference session. I guess and the sense was that he that that he viewed that, you know, he that that, that it was more orderly. Right. That that I mean, there was there, there was sort of a sense of why he was or at least speculation as to why he was speaking. 
Right. It had been a year since Thomas had asked a question in oral arguments. And I think before that, it was three years. And before that, maybe it was 10 years. I mean, this is not a guy who speaks up often. And I think he's described it or he's explained it because he just thinks that his colleagues talk too much during oral arguments. They don't let the attorneys speak. And so I think, yeah, exactly. Like this orderly way of doing it, it's more polite, it's more respectful in his eyes. And so he felt comfortable kind of asserting himself more than he has uh, uh, previously. But I think, you know, this kind of new orderly system had some other interesting effects as well beyond Thomas. Just as Stephen Breyer is, you know, normally the chattiest one (laughs) at the court during oral arguments, he goes on these long-winded hypothetical questions and like, I, I can't even really name some of the more zany ones that he's floated out there, but nothing is pretty much off limits uh, when he's talking. But this new formula kind of forced him to you know, tighten up a little bit, and he spoke, I think, significantly less um, during the, the teleconference arguments, whereas some of the other more you know, demure uh, members of the court kind of spoke up a little bit more. Like Kavanaugh, for instance, I think went from being kind of shy and quiet in the open court free-for-all setting to kind of speaking up and taking advantage of these allotted question and answer time. So yeah, it was definitely interesting to see, but obviously people didn't, some court watchers, uh, Lyle Denniston being one of the ones that comes to mind, a veteran court watcher of you know 50 or years or so, said that he didn't appreciate at all the new formula where Roberts, just, Chief Justice Roberts was having to police kind of like the amount of time that the justices would get to have questions Mm -hmm. just to keep things on schedule. And so I think people kind of didn't like the way that he had kind of an outsized influence over the course of the arguments. Well, speaking of Robert's influence, that's sort of the next bucket that I wanted to get to with you, Jimmy. Um, It really seems like it's, it's truly Robert's court now because he was a swing vote in some surprising cases where he actually sided with the liberal side of the bench. Um, what do you make of that? Is, is it Roberts, the, the, the person you got to get on your side for these tight 5-4 rulings? I think without question, he is now the power broker on the Supreme Court. He is Mr. Yeah. Majority. Uh, he dissented, I think, only twice, uh, one in a case involving uh, striking down non-unanimous jury systems in Louisiana and Oregon. And in the last one, I think it was on the last day of the term in a case involving tribal jurisdiction in Oklahoma. But for the remainder of the cases um, in which, you know, some progressives delivered some pretty big wins on, you know, things like Obama era protections for, you know, immigrants who arrived to the country as children to, uh, you know, work federal civil rights protections for LGBTQ workers. Yeah, Roberts was in the majority. And not only was he in the majority for a lot of these big decisions, but he even wrote the decisions and kind of used his position as the swing vote or the median justice to kind of influence the outcome, to to, to take kind of a more narrow approach to these decisions. I mean, and, and this was obviously interpreted with lots of nuance and, you know, everyone kept a level head in the political uh, end of things uh, when these rulings came out. Right. And of course, being a little bit facetious, I, I feel like the, the vibe was what happened to Roberts? Is Roberts a liberal now? Walk us through sort of what the sense is among court watchers as to, you know, why he went this way in a few of these really big sort of uh, cases and handed a win to that to the to the liberal end of the court. I think the first thing you got to know about Roberts is he is a conservative Republican appointee handpicked by uh, President George W. Bush to be the leader of the Supreme Court, to be the chief justice. Um, and the other thing you have to know about 
Chief Justice Roberts is he's also an institutionalist. He cares very deeply about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, its reputation in the eyes of the public. And so court watchers kind of have to balance these two kind of themes and things that we know about Chief Justice Roberts to explain some of his votes. And in a case, in a term like this one, that was so hectic and so, um, you know, monumental in terms of the backdrop, whether we're talking about the pandemic, whether we're talking about the political landscape where we saw only the third ever presidential impeachment trial in which he had to play a role himself. You know, Chief Justice Roberts' institutionalist instincts, uh, preserving that legitimacy of the court, um, kind of came to the fore in the eyes of a, of a lot of court watchers who were explaining these votes. He didn't want to kind of rock the boat with a lot of these big rulings. I think if you look at some of his swing votes, um, like let's take DACA, for instance, the Deferred mm-hmm. Action for a Childhood Arrival Program. His decision narrowly upheld DACA, um, although it recognized the authority of the Trump administration to rescind DACA. He said that the Trump administration didn't go about it in the right way. The upshot of that um, was not this blockbuster ruling forever enshrining DACA in law. It was rather a, a preservation of the status quo, not right. getting rid of a legal program that provided uh, protections for around 700,000 young immigrants in the midst of a pandemic, mind you. I think you can also kind of see some of that in his abortion vote. I mean, he did he, he didn't feel that now was the time to cast the crucial swing vote to overturn only a four-year-old Supreme Court precedent that had struck down a virtually identical Texas law. So this is the case involving hospital admitting privileges. Um, and so that would have instantly you know, brought the Supreme Court into, if it, you know, if it wasn't already, into the center of the debate over the upcoming election and the future of Roe v. Wade if you know, he had voted to strike down this law. So a lot of court watchers see in his votes a desire to kind of keep the Supreme Court as much as he can above the partisan fray and not kind of rock the boat even further amidst kind of a crazy term. And Jimmy, what do you make of people that have made the arguments? And I think I've even said this on per se myself, those two rulings you just outlined, Roberts also went out of his way to sort of explain how if the facts of the case were slightly different, he would have sided the other way that he would have um, okayed an administration getting rid of DACA. He, um, doesn't actually agree with how um, the precedent was decided four years ago about abortion. So if given a different opportunity that's just slightly different, he would come out the other way. Absolutely. I mean, I think that even if these are major progressive victories, they're narrow ones, nevertheless. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just mentioned it. I mean, he basically kicks the the can back to the, the political realm and says, okay, President Trump, if you really want to rescind DACA, here's how you do it. But, you know, we're not going to let you do it on these grounds. And by the same token, I mean, in the abortion case, he says, you know, I still think we decided that identical case four years ago wrong. I just don't want to overturn it. In fact, in the course of doing so, according to a lot of reproductive rights groups, he actually muddied the waters and gave kind of some ammunition to Republican states to enact, you know, further abortion regulations just by yeah. the way that he approached the case in his separate concurrence. Um, I think you saw that in the uh, case involving President Donald Trump's taxes. I mean, he really it was a mixed bag here. So even though he and this just to refresh everyone's memory, this was about um, whether or not the Manhattan district attorney and uh, a, a group of uh, House committees could get access to President Trump's financial records. You know, on the one hand, he said, 
yes, Trump is not absolutely immune from criminal process. On the other hand, Congress, who's seeking these documents, they, you know, that's a different question that, that right. raises a lot of separation of powers issues. But the upshot is, yeah, maybe a progressive victory when you look at the investigation going on in the, uh, uh, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. But, you know, the upshot is that the public's probably not going to be able to see any of these records before the <laughs> 2020 election. So it's very narrow indeed. And I think that's a theme of this year. One uh, one downstream effect of of what we've just been discussing, the idea that, you know, a, a court that many people would describe as as fairly conservative at this point sided with the liberal end more often this term is that some of the fiery dissents that we've seen in recent years coming from the liberal end of the court came from from the conservative end of the court this term. Talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, some of the dissents we saw and some of what really got people fired up um, about about the way that the majority ruled. Absolutely. I think last term was a good example of the five to four split. You saw so many rulings in which um, the liberal justice just vehemently dissented against what they considered to be the conservative justices kind of heavy handed way of overturning precedents and uh, et cetera and calling them out for doing so. But this term, you're right. I mean, it was I think the, the, the probably the most tersely worded, I guess I would say, uh, dissents came from it was friendly fire. It was conservative justice on conservative yeah. justice. Just as Samuel Alito uh, had some particularly harsh words for uh, one of the Trump appointees, Justice Neil Gorsuch. Um, you know, obviously, Justice Gorsuch is kind of a different flavor, a different brand of uh, conservative jurist, where he brings more of a libertarian ideology, a more kind of first principles, like let's see what the text says and follow that wherever it takes us mm-hmm. kind of more ideologically based where Alito tends to reach conservative outcomes more often than not. And so, you know, in the Title VII cases involving uh, whether the landmark civil rights law protected LGBTQ workers from workplace discrimination, Alito says that, you know, there's just no way that in 1964 when lawmakers prohibited discrimination, quote, because of sex, that they necessarily included discrimination because of one's sexual orientation or gender identity. And he really had some strong words for Gorsuch, and he says it's preposterous, it's like a brazen abuse of power, um, he calls it illogical, and you know any, any other things that he could fish out of the thesaurus. And similarly, Justice Clarence Thomas basically accused Chief Justice Roberts of being kind of politically cowardly in the case involving DACA, says that, you know... His DACA ruling, in which he provided that fifth vote to block the Trump administration from rescinding DACA, it was just an effort to avoid a politically controversial decision in favor or instead of a legally correct one. So, yeah, yeah. There was, they were those two in particular were not happy with some of the big cases. Jimmy, and how did they those out. two justices need some kind of uh, marker? We, Ruth Bader Ginsburg always had a dissent caller what do, what do we need to get thomas and alito now if they're the new dissenters i have no idea that's a really good thing uh that's a really good point i know that uh i was actually just thinking about this recently um how kind of some of the female justices they can have kind of adornments in the form of a jabot yeah. or earrings or a scrunchie or something like that whereas the male justices can't really flex their sartorial flair too much and in fact the last one to try it, Chief Justice Rehnquist with the yellow stripes, he kind of caught a lot of flack <laughs> for it. So I don't know what Thomas needs. I think maybe uh, Alito just needs like a like a paper bag to like kind of <laughs> ventilate into to kind of calm himself down because he looks like he's going <laughs> to blow a gasket uh, in some of these opinions. 
Jimmy, we'll let you go after this, um, but we just really got to nail you down on this before before we end the interview. Um, who do you think did the flush? Ooh, I am not the uh, intrepid investigative reporter that should be looking into this one. But uh, uh, so one thing I know that it wasn't the arguing mm-hmm. attorney Roman uh, Martinez of Latham and because they really they really got the 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 short shrift there because on C-SPAN the thing they showed when everybody was was airing the flush was this poor guy's face on the screen so i feel like he really just really became the face of the flush he became the face of the flush i think there was a piece in <laughs> slate that had suggested that maybe it was briar because he had had some issues with his microphone earlier in the argument so that's kind of the theory that's kind of the working theory right now sure. But until I guess you know, however many we didn't years. hear much from Breyer, you know, d- during arguments. So maybe that was his contribution, sound wise. Right. Uh, to, he was uh, letting everyone know what he thought of the attorney's I, argument. I, I love this as an enduring mystery that we'll yeah. never truly have the answer to, and um, just part of what made 2020 so wild at the Supreme Court. Thanks for coming to talk to us about all of it, Jimmy. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Jimmy. in our show is something offbeat and i think we're going back to a classic here where we talk about funny stuff the supreme court did because we're at the end of the term done this a couple years now uh we're rounding up some of the funny moments from the supreme court now uh as as people have heard you guys talked about the the infamous toilet flush incident uh during the court's uh, initial foray into teleconference arguments we devoted an entire segment to that a few weeks ago but i just wanted to roll the clip again just for just just for kicks the subject matter of the call might range beyond the collection of government back debt maybe they're going to be marketing some other product maybe they're going to be saying hey call your congressman and uh, change these laws that apply to banks and what the fcc has said is that when the subject matter of the call ranges to the topic <laughs> then the call is transformed and it's, it's yeah. a call that I love been allowed and it's no longer allowed. You know what? That's never I mean, going to get old. No, it's just I love still it. funny forever. He's just making Good. like the guy is making just like the like one of the driest arguments. It's about like phone privacy. It's about like you know robocalls and stuff. It's like it's like very dry administrative law stuff and like just clink flush. <laughs> um, but I wanted to I wanted to highlight some other ones. A uh, little peek behind the curtain here. How we do this? How how the publication does this every year is. I don't know if we have a tool or if somebody physically control Fs it, but we like scan the actual transcripts for the word laughter, which gets thrown in when people when the when the right. gallery laughs or whatever. Um, that's great, and it always makes for interesting stuff, which we'll talk about. You're giving um, away I, state secrets here. I, I know, yeah. Well, I but I, but I I want to say I think we should expand the we should widen the net a little bit. Because that doesn't that doesn't consider the jokes that don't land, which are some of my favorites. We need to oh, consider sure. the jokes that don't have laughter. Anyway, um, there was a couple other that uh, a couple other ones that that stood out here. A couple of which fall into a category that I will call the player haters ball, uh, <laughs> where the justices uh, took uh, uh, had a tendency to kind of lightly roast one another or people who were arguing before them when they were, uh, you know. Going, going down some weird paths. So, sure. uh, first up is the case. We've talked about it before. Bill, you can help me with the details here. This has to do with the way that the USPTO 
can recoup its legal fees. Um, yeah, they were saying that if they yeah. lost cases, you had to pay them anyway. It made no right. sense. They they lost nine zero. Like it it yeah. it was it was preposterous to begin with. But that's but all you really is, need to know about yeah. it. Yeah, but the point the point for this for these purposes is that this was like a reversal of the policy that they had done for like almost two hundred years, right? Yeah, or like that they, anyone yeah. that anyone had ever done. Yeah, right. Or anybody in the legal system, right? Yeah. Um. So anyway, uh, uh, this case was being argued, and Stephen Breyer, um, a man of letters, saw a historical analog, and he, see if you can stay with me here. Uh, he compared this to he, he he compared the government's new position on attorneys' fees to someone suddenly understanding the works of the ancient Roman emperor Justinian who created a legal compilation known as the Corpus Juris Civilis. Uh, uh, civilis. Uh, what, what is he talking about? And, uh, and if you are confused, uh, so is John Roberts. You'll hear uh, in this clip, Breyer finishing this point, then a remark from a government lawyer, and then Roberts kind of gives him the business. The, the, what about your... <laughs> I don't... This is slightly frivolous, but I mean, we say, we finally figured out what Justinian meant by this particular thing a thousand years ago. You see the... I, I, I see the point, but, you know, the court... the court share it with the rest of us? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's just saying, like, if you... Yeah, I mean, if you get it, please feel free to enlighten the rest of us. He's, like, not intrigued by Breyer's little digression. Look, as a, guy, as a guy who covers trademark law and really enjoys history, <laughs> I thought it was a great moment. I, okay. I got a real... I thought it was a real nice. hoot. Um, the other, um, uh, the other thing, uh, there was a pretty decent zinger from Elena Kagan. Uh, she was grilling this attorney who um, got in a little bit over his head in the case about we we actually talked about this case about copyright protections for annotated legal texts. He begins to make an argument, and then she tells she she interrupts him. And they have a they, they have a little exchange about uh, uh, him continuing this thought. Underlying source, Mr. Yen. I'm, I'm sorry. Finish your sentence. Well, I was just going to say that the the annotations here are research aids. They are created after the fact. They provide a comprehensive, not a selective uh, selection of materials related to the statutes. There's no approval for the substance, and in fact, the context is easier than Callahan. Because it's made Don't by finish a- it that far. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I want to say this in my regular life all the time. She's my hero. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, how, that's, that's relatable. Like, how, how many times have you said, okay, keep, keep saying what you were saying if you interrupted somebody, and then they continue on, and, and you were like, like oh, no, I really stop wish. It. <laughs> yeah, right. And she just cut him short there. Oh, it's so uh, good. That yeah. one's great. Uh, uh, the last one, um, uh, I don't want to talk about. We, uh, we're going back to Roberts now, and this is actually pretty interesting because this is a this is an it's an interesting interplay between Roberts and uh, uh, Gibson uh, Gibson Dunn attorney Ted Olson, who is uh, who is a bit who is a Supreme Court big shot. He argues there all the time, um, and he, he was making arguments about it's a case about appointments made to this government board that oversees uh, uh, affairs relating to Puerto Rico. Olson tried the old trick of when people people do this in briefs and in arguments, when they present an argument from an older case, he's talking about a case from 1991, while he's kind of hiding the ball on what the court actually said about this argument. And uh, Roberts uh, was was not exactly fooled. 
Well, that is part of the theory, and as, as the United States repeatedly said with respect to, in the Freetag case, the Deputy Solicitor General was asked a question about what if the governor of Puerto Rico was appointed by Congress or a federal official. Uh, and the response from the federal government was that would invoke, in every case, the appointments clause. Did that Deputy Solicitor General prevail on that position? <laughs> That deputy solicitor general made a beautiful argument. <laughs> and how did that go for them? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> like, I mean, clearly. <laughs> but you can tell what a pro he is, though, that he didn't really stumble. He just went to a beautiful argument. I mean, yeah, yeah didn't throw him <laughs> too much there. Yeah, there was some interesting stuff. Uh, Roberts, uh, I think most people might remember Roberts said, okay, boomer at one point. That was pretty interesting. Well, and um, I, I think there's, it's worth noting with, with Ted Olson, uh, that, you know, there's this super elite tier of Supreme yeah. Court litigator who Great call. you see in these funny moments where there, there's like seven of them and they are yeah. the only people who are allowed to do this. And if you're some, from like some podunk lawyer up there arguing, don't try to make jokes with the with the justices, but if you're but if you're Ted Olson, you can sort of go back and forth with John Roberts. It's a very interesting thing you see when you're looking at these funny clips. It's a great call. Um, the other one, uh, uh, we don't have to play the sound on it, but there, Bill, I thought of you because there was someone. Uh, Alito had a back and forth. They were talking about international arbitration, and Alito was talking with this guy about uh, some some passage from German law, and and the the attorney said, uh, I don't know what the German word is for it, but I'm sure it's very long. And that reminded me that that is a classic Bill Donahue, like unprompted text of we need a long German word for something for an indescribable idea. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that so that came up. It was a pretty interesting term. What's the long German word for the end of the Pro Se podcast episode? <laughs> well, again, it's indefinable. So I think we're just going to that, that that is the well, entire shows, point of the exercise. Shows ended now. Yeah, there you go. Shows ended now. <laughs> Good call. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, thanks for being with me today, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Jimmy Hoover, and contributing reporters, Suzanne Moniak, Chris Villani, Jeff Overly, RJ Vogt, and Annie Panzak. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se and you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. And we'd appreciate it if you left us a review where you're listening right now. That helps other people find our show. Thanks, and see you again next week.